0: Thanks so much uh, for that reading, Marina. It'd be great to have that one uh, open in your Bibles. I'm going to pray and we will jump in. Heavenly Father, thank you that you, are, you, the author, are present here this morning. We thank you, Father, for these words that you've preserved for us through 2,000 years. We pray this morning that by your Holy Spirit, you would open our ears, soften our hearts, that we might hear and be changed to be more and more like your Son, But we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we're doing in our series, Jesus Is, Jesus Is a Crutch. And so we're going to be looking at that this morning. I want to take a moment to walk in that worldview, have a think what it looks like to live in that worldview. I think if you're going to say that Jesus is a crutch, there's a certain sense in which Jesus is not particularly clear to you. When do you need God in your life? If you were to say, when do you need God? I'd say the first time that you need God is not when everything is sunny. When everything is sunny, I don't need God. If my life is on, is on rails, uh, I'm kicking goals, my children are behaving brilliantly, such that I'm happy to have them out in, in public, uh, you know, uh, I've remembered to pay all my insurance, my car's running beautifully, work is a joy and a delight, I have energy for grace to the other humans that are in the space around me. I mean, when when, when world's like that, do you need God? When everything's sunny, we don't, we don't often, I don't think we need God, but this assumes, and I think often our worldview assumes, I'll need God when it's stormy. Let's reverse all of those things. You forgot to pay your car insurance, so you're cranky at your wife who didn't remind you. Uh, And that means that your kids are behaving in a less than optimal way when you go out. And anyway, you you guys know something about this, perhaps. In those times, it's much more easy to say, God, have mercy on me. (laughs) Help me. Don't you see my woe and distress? When times are stormy, I think we're often more ready to chat with God. And so perhaps people observing Christians might draw the conclusion Christianity is a crutch for those in distress because that's when we call out. There may be something in it that people watching Christians might observe, you're pretty chatty with God when everything's up the spout, but I don't hear you talking about him very much when everything's going well. So perhaps we can think, Maybe it's a little bit stormy. Maybe the reason that people think that Christianity is a crutch is because they have a picture of the average Christian being uh, like this. Uh, A retired woman is the picture of what the church perhaps is like. We love having retired women here, incidentally, but maybe this is what the world thinks all of you look like. Apparently, according to statistics, 1.5 million Australians don't know a Christian. Can you believe that? 1.5 million Australians don't know another Christian. 45% of Australians say that they don't talk about religion. That sounds about right, doesn't it? 45% of us don't talk about religion at all. So how would they know? How would they know what we're like unless they overhear us calling out, God, please have mercy on me and make my children wonderful? Of the no religion people, you know when they do the census, they have the no religion box? 22% 22% of people put themselves in the no religion box and one in five of them say the reason that they put no religion down is because they see that religion is a crutch for the weak. That's what they're thinking. Who needs religion? It's a crutch for the weak. And so there's this kind of throwaway line which um, Ian in my life group told me, he heard someone say to him, maybe your Sky Daddy will help you out. Now, I mean, that, that's... His, That's as pejorative and and ugly as it can possibly get, isn't it? But if we follow the logic of that through, Christianity is a crutch, what does the logic say? Well, the logic says about you, number one, those who need God are weak. Those who need God are weak. And the person who says Christianity is just a crutch, I think, is secondly saying, I'm strong enough not to need God. Yeah? I'm having such a great day, I can pour rubbish on you as a pitiful Christian because I'm just nailing life. Let's see what the Bible has to say and consider whether it would be fair or unfair to say that Christianity is a crutch and that Jesus is too. Uh, Do you have one of these at home? Uh, Fridge. What goes on the fridge? All sorts of stuff. We've got... um, some people we're praying for, which is great. Uh, Compassion kids, that's all awesome. A recipe for this week, fantastic. What else goes on fridges in your place? Oh, nice, okay, yes, yeah, so, so handy information. Uh, descriptions of spiders and various other bits and pieces live on the side of our fridge. I don't know why we really want to know, just kill all of them. That's my, my take on things. Uh, r- Roster, church rosters, yes, excellent. What else goes on, yeah? Kids artwork, Absolutely. Also, what goes on ours are invitations. I don't know if there is a, other, another holy place in the whole of the house that invitations go, but they always, always end up on the fridge. Invitations end up on the fridge. I want to hear an invitation with you this morning. Let's go to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, and we're going to read verses 25 to 30. Matthew chapter 11. Actually, we'll read from verse 28. In verse 28, we see Jesus say, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I absolutely love this part of the Bible. I remember... uh, before Carolyn was my girlfriend or my wife or anything, just one of my friends, nice, uh, I was in hospital because I'd, um, I'd worked myself a little bit too hard, bad, bad moment during uni. I was in hospital and Carol wrote me a card and it had this verse on it. It's been precious to me ever since. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. It's absolutely a beautiful part of the Bible. Who's on the invite list? Who is Jesus flinging open the invitation for? The weary and the burdened. Are there any people who would fall into that category here this morning? Weary and burdened. If you are, the weary and the burdened need support, don't they? The weary and the burdened need a crutch. We're struggling. We're feeling weighed down. And in response to that, Jesus offers them a yoke Now, what is a yoke? A yoke is uh, this bit here that's over the shoulders of the buffalo. Just so we're clear, there weren't very many buffalo in Israel, so so we're okay, but but it was a nice illustration. It's the bit that connects the beast of burden with the plough or the thing that they're pulling. That's the yoke, okay, across the shoulders. It came to mean teaching and discipline of a learner to a master. So I'll give you a yoke, I'm the master, my yoke is the teaching I give to you, okay? Now, in the old uh, time, the time that Jesus is here, the yoke that was around the necks of the people was a serious case of religion, a serious case of religion, that won't particularly surprise you, but it got down to the point where the Pharisees were saying, you need to get your holiness stuff sorted out to the point where they were tithing their herbs, this is Jesus' accusation to them. He says, you guys have got so down in the depths of trying to be law-abiding that when it comes to tithing, you're literally nine for me and a, a little bit of herb for Jesus. Oh, not for Jesus, for God, of course. So, so there we go. Their religiosity was massive, and what it created was an unrealistic burden on the people of that time. Now, are there any people here tithing their parsley? You could start by tithing your money, that'd be great, we'd encourage you to do that, but not your parsley. You don't need to do that. Where do we feel weary and burdened? I don't think it's because of hyper-religion. That's not really our end, is it? We we might actually have some problems in the other direction. We feel weary and burdened because we sit in the traffic on the M5, for instance. Anyone? Yep. Complete insanity. Insanity. EM7, Norellon Road, Camden Valley Way, any direction you want to go these days. We feel weary and burdens. It's not in the same way that the people in the first century felt it, but we feel it. And Jesus says, I will offer you something other than the weariness of this world and the weight of strict religion. He says, come to me, for my yoke is easy, my teaching is easy, and my burden is light." I want you to see that Jesus didn't just make this up from nowhere. If we look at our timeline of the Old and New Testaments, we see in the Old Testament that God had actually said to his people he was interested in giving them rest. In Jeremiah 31, he says, this is a picture of the future. He says, people will live together in Judah and all its towns, farmers and those who move about with their flocks. I will refresh the weary and satisfy the faint. Sounds good, doesn't it? And then we see Jesus say, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And he will. But the ultimate fulfillment will be at the end of the Bible, where we hear these beautiful words in Revelation 14. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. See, one day, brothers and sisters, not only will we have the yoke of Jesus on us, but one day we'll experience the full rest, which is being in the presence of the Lord in the last day. And I hope you look forward to that. That's when the full rest will be. In the meantime, Jesus offers us a support to the weary. If you're weary, come to him. Jesus is, let's say, a crutch to those who are weary of this life, Or the burden of strict religion. Uh, Let me confess my sins. Uh, I like, Stu, the way you led us into confession today. It was great. I confess my sins. Uh, This is uh, my hedge. I have no green thumbs, black thumbs, okay? But this is my hedge in the back of my place. Now, it's been a bit dry, has it not? Half the hedge is green. This half of the hedge, not looking so good. Now, what could I reasonably uh, expect from this hedge, do you think, moving forward? The rubbish bin, excellent. So what could my expectations be? You're going to bush up and supply joy, and what if I say to it, live? I think we've missed the boat, have we not? Bye-bye's time for my hedge. What could we expect when it's dead? It's it's no good for me to expect anything from it at this point. Let me ask you this: How lively would you say your soul is? Think of it in this garden analogy. Are we bursting forth with life, all trimmed to the edges, flowers, grass, natives? If you're into that sort of thing, are you full of life, or are you dry and weary? I'll listen to the way Ephesians talks about the soul of those who are yet to know God. Let's go to Ephesians. Galatians, Ephesians uh, is in uh, the back of your Bibles. Ephesians chapter 2. If someone can find the page number for me, that'd be awesome. Ephesians chapter 2. 1174. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Why don't you have a look at verses 1 to 3 with me about the state of the soul? ...prior to knowing Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins... ...in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world... ...and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us... Note that. All of us also lived among them at one time... ...gratifying the cravings of our flesh... And following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. See, what's the picture presented in the Bible of the state of our souls prior to coming to God? We might think we're basically doing okay, all we need is the gardener to come in and give us a bit of a trim, and then we'll be on Jesus' team. And Jesus says the picture is far worse than that. It says, it says that we are dead in our sins in 2 1. It says that we're ruled by the prince of this age in 2 2. It says we're slaves to our passions and desires in 2 3. And it says devastatingly that we're objects of wrath in 2 3. See, we aren't a nice garden that Jesus could adopt if he was looking for some hobby time. We're destined, where do we say my hedge was destined? For the bin. We didn't have anything to offer. There were no redeeming qualities left. We were spiritually dead. Now in that case, one has to think a little, what do we need? What do we need? Romans 8 says this, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. Notice what it says about the sinful mind. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's laws, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. This is pretty devastating, isn't it? Before we know Jesus, it's not like we're mostly okay. It says there's a fundamental inability in us. It says we're hostile to God and it says we can't submit to his law and we cannot please him. It's a devastating picture. At that point, I want you to know we were in worse shape than we knew. We're in worse shape spiritually than we knew. Well, what do we need at that point? What do you need if you're dead and unable to respond to the gardener's hand? We need a saviour. 1 Peter 3 puts it this way. Christ died for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. What did God do? He saved us. Not when we were worth it, but when we were without hope. We needed a crutch and we didn't know it. Uh, This is a picture of me, little me. Now, I broke my leg when I was about uh, seven years old, snapped both bones here, clean through. Pretty good. Um, And I decided, once I had a full leg cast, which went up to here, that it was pretty good for running around on. Right? My leg didn't move. It was all pasta from here to here. I had it on for 11 weeks, so I got pretty used to it. And what I decided was, these crutch things, uh, they're not really needed. You can do this pretty happily. And so I started to walk around everywhere without my crutches. I don't need them, I said. I'll be fine. I'm going to get around without my crutches. And I started to run to keep up with my brother, because, you know, you've got to keep up with your brother. And what happened was, you'd be surprised to know, that the, um, uh, the cast started to crack. The third time that they were fixing my cast I don't know what my mum did with me anyway. She, she's very lovely. Um, the third time they were fixing my cast, the doctor sat me down on the bed and he said, now, are you going to run on this cast? And I said, no. He said, well, let me, let me persuade you why it's not a good idea. And what he did was he got out an x-ray that showed broken bones with multiple screws through them. Big, fat, chunky screws through them. He said, do you know what they are? I said, they look like screws. I said, yeah. Would you like them through your bones inside your leg forever? No. He said, Don't run on your cast again. Use your crutches. Now, here's the thing I didn't know how bad I was. I thought I could get about running on my broken leg, and it was doing damage to me. We are spiritually broken. If you go running around without a crutch, you are hurting yourself now and you are scarring yourself into the future. We need crutches. We need a saviour. We need someone who will come into our lives and fix up our brokenness. We need a crutch. Does anyone like playing Monopoly? (laughs) <laughs> I want to know if there's anyone who likes playing Monopoly. Yeah, there are some. Great. When does Monopoly finish? Never? No, there's an answer. When, thank you, Tim. When someone flips the board, that's when we finish the game, Monopoly. It never finishes properly. What happens when you uh, are getting to the end of the game is your, prop- your properties all get mortgaged, don't they? And you have to try and buy them back out of mortgage. But we know something about mortgages, don't we? Aaron Park? We know something about mortgages. The average Sydney mortgage apparently is 600K, average mortgage. And here, if you look at the average house prices here, it's got to be, I think the average last year was like 750 or something here. We know about mortgages here. What does a mortgage do? Does it create pressure in your life? Does it give you a burden? Does it weigh you down? What if I told you, just today, imagine, magically, your mortgage was canceled. How would you feel? That's the response, isn't it? I don't even have to prompt you. There's other stuff that's boring in service, but mortgage being canceled.! Woo-hoo-hoo! That sounds great, doesn't it? So imagine I told you your mortgage was canceled. What would change? Can you think about the things that would be different? Can you think of how relieved you'd be if that weight was off your shoulders? Wouldn't it be brilliant? It would be brilliant, wouldn't it?
1: Jesus tells a
0: story because he meets two people. The first person is someone who's smug and strong. They're a religious person who figure that they've got it sorted out. It's a Pharisee. His name's Simon. The second person is someone who's full of sin and shame. Someone for whom the world hasn't worked out right, either through their own choices or the society around them, this person feels utterly on the outer. They feel worthless. In contrast, this bloke feels like God is lucky to have him on his team. Jesus is having dinner at his house, so he must have all the brownie points in the world when this woman comes in. You heard the story read before. Let's go to it, Luke 7, 36-43. Luke 7, 46, uh, 36 to 43. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she, stood behind him at his, as she stood behind him, at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee, who had invited him, not the woman note, said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. So what's the inference? I know better than Jesus. I know this woman's a sinner. Jesus is blind to how bad this woman is. Verse 40, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher. He said, see, I'm really important. Jesus is talking to me. Tell me, tell me teacher. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So, massively unexpectedly, he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You judged correctly, Jesus said. It's a fascinating story, and what Jesus is doing is pointing something out. There's actually a hidden thing in here. This man thinks that his debt is Small. The woman knows her debt is massive. And so Jesus, in a brilliant way, which is the way all stories work, says, hey, I want to tell you a story. He tells the story and he says to the man, do you know what's happening in the story? And he's smart enough to go, oh, I see the story. Yeah, yeah. The person who's been forgiven more, they would obviously love more. And what's Jesus saying? Hey, mate, you know how you reckon I missed something about this woman? You might have missed something about yourself here. Yeah, You think you're so good that you have a small debt. She knows she has a massive debt, but her debt has led her to seek me and to honor me while you have failed to wipe my feet, kiss me, anoint my head with oil. You haven't done any of those things, and this woman has done it in abundance. There's this beautiful quote I read in a a, um, uh, commentary I was reading this week. It says, It is not what the sinner is that Jesus sees but what the sinner could be through God's love. Isn't that brilliant? So Jesus looks at this broken woman and says, I see you. I see what God can do in you and through you if only you could be released in his love by forgiveness. And he looks at a smug man who is counting his blessings and thinking to himself, Jesus is lucky to be having me in his house today. Smugness... Never comes off well with God. Brokenness, he delights in. He absolutely delights in. And so let me ask you today, here's a diagnostic test for us. Do you feel that you're better than most? Do you look down on those who are enthusiastic in the service of God? <laughs> Some people try and clap in church. Can you believe that? What are they doing? Some people raise their hands. We don't have any fans here. It's going to be okay. Don't worry. Why do they do that? Can't they just get on with it? I mean, we'll get through the songs and we'll get to the really important stuff. Do you feel like you're probably okay in spiritual things because God's probably lucky to have you on his team? These will tell the size of your debt. These will reveal the size of your debt. And if your debt feels small to you, I would suggest to you there's a strong chance that you'll despise the cross. The debt forgiven will reveal the size of your love. Lord Jesus, if you could forgive me my debt, my debt, then how much would I love to pour my life out to you? If I figure it's a car loan instead of a house mortgage, I'm going, well Jesus, it's nice of you, thanks so much. If it's the unpayable debt of forgiveness before God, and he's done it for you, how much should we live a life pouring our hearts out before God? See, I want to suggest to you today, Jesus is a crutch. But he's only a crutch if you'll admit that you're weak and that you need him. What should we do if that's true? Well, I want to say Jesus is a crutch. Let's say, yes, Jesus is a crutch. He's a crutch to those who are weaker than they knew. He is a crutch to those who are weaker than they knew. And mocking or agreeing with this depends on how large you see your debt to be. There's another side, Jesus is a crutch. No, at some level, that's to sell the resurrected king and judge of all short of his glory. Is Jesus a crutch? He's not only that, is he? He's much more. He's the glorious risen son of God. He's the judge of all. He's the Messiah. Is Jesus a crutch? Well, that's to sell him short. Is he a crutch for the weak? Absolutely. Take hold of him, but then get to know him as so much more. Will Jesus be your God for stormy and sunny weather? Will he be your God for stormy and sunny weather? Jesus offers you today rest if you're weary. He offers life to the spiritually dead, and he offers the cancellation of debts to those who know the weight of their sin. Jesus is crutch. What do you say? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beautiful way that you restored and forgave a woman who chose to humiliate herself before others because of her devotion and love for you. Father, might we know the weight of our debt might we know the joy of its forgiveness. And may you help us to run with restored legs because we have you as our King. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.